2: Good afternoon. Good morning. Good evening. I'm covering all three bases for all three of us. Good evening, where I am. Good afternoon, Vivek, and good morning, Stephen. Uh, Stephen, how you doing?
1: That's great. I'm, I'm doing well. Yeah, it's you're right. It's uh, top of the morning here on the West Coast of uh, British Columbia, so it couldn't be better.
2: And Vivek, good afternoon. How are you doing? Good, good. I've
0: got a full lunch in me, so I'm ready to go. I'm charged up. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'm fully charged as well, having just had dinner and uh, maybe Stephen. I don't know what a typical breakfast is in Vancouver, Stephen.
1: I mean, I just had half a bagel and I've had two cups of coffee. So it's kind of like the journalist diet, I think.
2: (laughs) Indeed. Coffee keeps us going. Uh, For those of you tuning in, make sure you hit the like button and subscribe to the channel if you are new. We are here, as we wrote in the description, to discuss the Australian Open on the men's side. I did a video a couple of days ago on the women's, so make sure you go and check that out with Caitlin from Racket Magazine. But listen, Stephen, let's start with you, as, as you're kind of at the top of the screen, so to speak. Um, what did you make of the men's tournament as a whole, if you like this year?
1: Well, I thought it was there was great, you know, overarching storylines coming in to me the main one was obviously Djokovic I called it the revenge tour like you know no matter how you see Djokovic or what happened to him last year in Australia you can understand that he's Mm -hmm. definitely like on the revenge tour and he's he's coming to like win the tournament and like prove that he was gonna win it last year and that you know in it and he as a guy who you know has definitely taken issue with crowds being against him in the past like he's a guy that loves getting revenge and like all the fair enough, like all the power to him. So that was, that was interesting obviously. Um, and then, you know, I thought that it was disappointing though, the tournament, in gen- and it was amazing to see him come through and it was a pretty decent final, but just as we were speaking before the, before we got on here, John, the tournament in general, I thought was a little bit uh, without, you know, didn't have, I think the best matches almost happened in the first week with Andy Murray was kind of the star of the tournament, in my opinion. And mm-hmm. then, you know, seeing a 35-year-old guy beat everyone who is in their prime, like, so easily. And then even Stefano Sissapas, who does have the skill and the ability to beat him, in a, he should in a final, even to see him get kind of, like, routined in a bit of a sense, uh, I thought was a little bit, you know, <laughs> not exciting uh, for the average tennis fan. So, But super awesome to see, you know, especially for Djokovic fans to see him, him accomplish what he was set out to do um so great good tournament in general um i thought though a little bit lacking suspense
0: to say to say the least vivek how did you feel yeah along the same lines as steven i think uh, it was a bit flat i think when you look at the u.s open um you know coming into that tournament you were saying okay djokovic isn't there so you wanted to see that younger generation step up to the plate and so you got these great matchups right like everyone remembers um the the Alcaraz matchup with Sinner and how amazing that match was and you're saying okay this is what the future of tennis looks like you had that Tiafo upset uh, against Nadal and you're saying okay we're on to something here and I think especially like looking at the draw beforehand I, I was looking at you know, the one section of the draw where you potentially had Sitsipas playing Medvedev or, uh, you know, Felix playing uh, against Medvedev or Sitsipas or or both potentially. And to not get those matchups, I think kind of hurt the tournament on the men's side. And obviously you had your share of upsets on the women's side as well. But I think for the men, especially now in this period where we are, I think as fans, we all want some kind of certainty And, and so to get these mystery matchups where, you know, you're going into it thinking, okay, there's no real appeal here. I think that's what kind of hurt the tournament.
2: Yeah. um, My generic thoughts are um, Novak didn't need any assistance whatsoever in, in Melbourne. And I'm pretty sure he would have won the tournament no matter what, but he may have had a slightly bumpier ride had all of these dominoes kind of fell for him as well with, with perhaps the court conditions, playing at night, etc. I heard Gil Gross mentioning, for example, the low bounce. In addition to that, and probably even more significantly, Alcaraz, a week before, two weeks before, whatever it is, pulls out the tournament injured. We don't know what Alcaraz would have showed up, bearing in mind, you know, I don't think he's shown anything like the New York form that he had shown, but still, it would have been a question mark. Suddenly, if Alcaraz gets some momentum and he's in that final, for example, you're thinking... Can he do it? He can. We know he can. But there was never quite that belief with Sitsi Pass. I even think stuff like Sebi Corder, he posed a few questions in Adelaide, didn't get the chance to, to pose more questions, if you like. Holger Runa, the net cord. There were so many things that went on in that match. It was, in many ways, the most dramatic of the tournament, Andy Murray aside. But there were just so curious as well. You know, all of the potential banana skins that could have posed questions for Novak just never occurred. But listen, Stephen, let's uh, show some optimism and positivity. I mean, Novak's kind of, you know, it's a Rafa-Philippe-Chatrier-esque kind of dominance here. And arguably, it's even more impressive on what could be described as a neutral surface, if you like. Yeah, good point. Yeah, it's it's incredible
1: watching, like, the master at something work. Like, with the flatter balls this tournament, like you mentioned, he... He almost went flatter with his strokes a little bit to to get you know through the court um, more effectively, and he was he looked like he was out hitting, like he was hitting bigger than all of his opponents throughout the entire tournament, which is kind of crazy if you think about it, because like he's always you know he's a sneaky big guy too. Like everyone's like he's six two, and he's like definitely a little longer than Rafa and Federer. Um, so he's and he uses a heavy racket, which helped I think during this tournament, um, which people might not know um but you know typically like he's gonna play he'll, like he'll play like a jan leonard stuff in the second round easily beat him but you know leon leonard does hit bigger than him or play Hatchinov or berrettini or you know some someone like that who hits bigger than him he'll just like you know be way better and find a way to win but he was like the obvious better player but he was also hitting bigger there was i don't think there was anyone all tournament even rublev like when they went forehand to forehand i still felt like Djokovic was going to win that and could easily push him back and even with Stefanos who I do think has a better forehand at this point in their careers like it was still Djokovic was hitting it better this tournament and and, and almost bigger which is uh scary if you think about it like who so w- what is somebody in the tour right now going to do to beat Djokovic here on at the Australian Open unless he drops his level with age which hasn't happened yet um it's just yeah so it's amazing to watch this guy play like he gets better year after year and yeah we're watching like the best anyone has ever played uh you know especially on on the Australian Open surface so it's, it's pretty crazy
2: Vivek what did you make of the final
0: I think you know Novak was always able to just hold Pass at arm's length and I think we saw over the course of the tournament the, the way the stats played out with Novak's opponents everything that they were so successful at coming into playing Novak they weren't able to do Right. And you saw, for example, Tommy Paul saying, hey, it, part of my game plan was to, you know, serve and volley. I yeah. didn't have to serve and volley all match. And, you know, the fact that he can do these things with, uh, you know, a three centimeter hamstring tear is mind boggling. And I think one thing that I enjoyed watching while he was injured was how aggressive he was. And that's something we're not used to seeing from him. And it's something that I hope we see more of because I think he is someone who is capable of redlining for longer, if that makes sense. And, you know, I think you see other players who can get hot for certain stretches, but I think he's so efficient, so consistent that I think he can afford to play this aggressive level that sort of separates him even further from the pack. You know, we've seen Nick Kyrgios for example talk about the difference between Roger and Novak and how Novak sort of makes you feel like you have a chance, but Roger can, you know, make the court feel small and just make you feel terrible. I felt like Novak did that this tournament. He was the one that was making the court feel small. He was the one that was literally bullying you on the court. And so Uh, You know, just to touch back on the comparisons you made between Djokovic and Nadal, Djokovic at the Australian Open, Nadal at the French Open, uh, I had tweeted this stat at the end of the tournament. So if you go back since uh, Djokovic uh, won in 2011, and we all know 2011 is really when things started Mm -hmm. to click for Novak, at the Australian Open, he is 71-3 and and has nine Australian Open titles since 2011 Nadal at the French open since 2011 74 and two nine titles Mm. so he's pretty much just as dominant at the Australian open uh, as Rafa has been obviously Rafa has the greater longevity having done it pretty much since 2005 but if you just look at that period since 2011 he's untouchable his losses his three losses Vavrinka, Istomin and Chung yeah. And, you know, those are pretty much, outside of the Wawrinka one, those are pretty much just free classes.
2: And a bit like Nadal, I think two of those three came in a sort of sticky spell of about 18 months. I think Rafa's, Rafa's sticky spell kind of overlaps a bit with his. But, yeah, sort of 15, 16, 17, 18, as it was for, for Novak, 17, 18. Um, interestingly, you touched on his 08 win there. Uh, when he won that uh, 08, I remember thinking, Oh, this guy might win one or two. There was a, there was a, a very like one or two slams. You know, he was going to be somebody who, you know, might. The question would be, was it wasn't quite the same with Rafa and Roger. It was like, oh, this guy's going to win many French, and if he if he gets the hang of it, he's going to win tournaments el- elsewhere. Roger was already, you know, establishing himself in so many ways. But with Novak, it never felt like things were going to click for him in the way they did in 2011. And even when they did in 2011, it's like, this could be a Medvedev sort of 2019, okay, a bit better over, you know, more variety of surfaces. No one really quite saw this probably until probably sort of 14, 15, if you like. But anyway, I've gone off a a tangent there. It was interesting what you said about Tommy Paul Vivek because I don't think he was directly responding to it, but indirectly, uh, Craig O'Shaughnessy, uh, the ATP tour coach, he highlighted during the match: "Why isn't you know, Why isn't Tommy Paul doing this? Why isn't he coming to the net? Why isn't he?" And, and Tommy's like, "Well, yeah, but I, you know, it's it's easier said than done. You can't just come to the net off a random forehand."
0: Yeah, I, th- I think that's the pressure he puts with the depth that he's able to generate consistently. And again, when I talk about his ability to maybe redline for longer. That's the key, right? It's being able to hit the ball back on returns, right at, <clears throat> right at your feet uh, to go consistently beyond, uh, you know, the serve box, get it consistently deep. Have you on your toes? Have you consistently backpedaling as opposed to getting on top of the ball? And that is where Novak is able to separate himself. That's why, When you do see him lose, uh, it is usually that Wawrinka type, right? That, That type of player who can get hot for extended stretches and just effectively take the racket out of your hand. And so I think if Novak really looks at this tournament and says, hey, there's something here with being this aggressive it could separate him from the pack even further, which is scary to to think at age, you know, he's going to be 36 by the time the French Open arrives.
2: By the way, just to go a bit left field and keep you on your toes, I decide to, every now and again, I break the podcast rule of going, Vivek, tell me, Stephen, tell me. (laughs) So I thought, I thought I'll just push that back towards you, Vivek, and I think you'll grasp it. But there was like a moment of, Oh, I guess I, I should take this one. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about Steven. that, <laughs> Steven, no. Here we go. Here we go. Back back to the old old routine. Go on, Steven.
1: Yeah, well, no. Tommy Paul is a great um, example for that because I you know, I actually know his coach Brad Stein, and and I know that Tommy, you know, since they've been working together, has worked at becoming a super all court player. Um, he's got great hands, and um, and he's just a super good mover around the court. So his whole game is like trying to not be the baseline grinder. And yeah, it was really interesting to hear him say like he just blew up my game plan. Like I just didn't feel confident doing what I had planned to do, and doing the only things that really could have given him an advantage, which would have been like you know, you know, moving Djokovic you know forward and back, like bringing him forward with slices, and then coming to the net himself. Um, and then he he said basically he just kind of got like mentally locked. Um, you know, that's all. You know, that's his first time playing Djokovic. That's his first time at a major quarterfinal. So that's probably why that happened. I think. You know, next time they play, it's not going to be any different. He's just going to have to go to the net and get passed three or four times and then keep doing that. Because, like, that's the only way to, you You, you know, if you're scared of getting passed, like, you're never going to be a good net player. So and he knows that it's just a one off match thing. But it, it was interesting to hear uh, how how mentally Djokovic um, can mess with you.
2: Um, talking of the final as well with you, Stephen, um, Stefanos Tsitsipas on the other side of the net. Uh, I did fear the final going the way it did, although there were one or two differences to what I expected. I thought that Novak would win because he would basically do less backhand under, uh, you know, unforced errors, backhand winners. It would all, all pretty much come down to the backhand. I thought it could be nip and tuck when it comes to the serve, but actually it was the forehand that let Stefanos down. Yeah, that's, that's right.
1: And yeah, that, you know, his forehand, the forehand to forehand battle was going to be interesting to me because I do feel like Tsitsipas' forehand is the best in the game right now. Um, And let, like, you know, what would have happened in that match if Stefanos had had like the best forehand night of his career? Like we just, like, it would be, you, you got to think that he was winning that second set and then you yeah. never know. Right. So it, it's, he got to the tiebreaker in that second set, which he was, I would say the better player in that whole set. Mm-hmm. Djokovic mm-hmm. was kind of hanging on and then his forehand blew up and he gave like four unforced errors in a yeah, seven yeah. point tiebreak tiebreak, and it's over, especially when you're playing Djokovic. So, and then you're two, down two sets and then, and then Djokovic became the better cleaner player in the third set. Only four unforced errors, I think in that set. So, you know, it's just, it's just too much to come from down two sets against Djokovic. Um, and yeah, like it's you know players have bad nights. Um, we always talk about the the floors, the floors and the ceilings of players. Like Djokovic's floor level is going to beat ninety nine percent of the players on tour. To pass with his forehand breaking down a bit, he's still going to beat most players on tour, um, but he's not going to beat Djokovic. But the disappointing thing to me is that he, I like, we know he can beat Djokovic. Like he beat him twice out of the first three times they played. But he's gotten really mentally rattled, I think, after that French open come from behind loss as as we all would, like as is totally understandable. but it's it's just disappointing because he's not really the player he could be when he in that matchup, I think, when he's, you know, I guess a lot of other players, and he's he's bringing out his best tennis. He's finding his best tennis in the tight moments. But it seems like he has a real handicap in the tight moments um, to find his best tennis when it comes to playing. To
2: playing Djokovic, which
1: again makes sense, I think is it ten matches
2: in a row now that he's won yeah, Djokovic. Yeah, no, nine in a row, ten. A row. I think it's eleven and eleven and two. So yeah, yeah it was yeah, it was uh,
0: nine coming into the final. So it, right, yeah. So it's ten now.
2: So that to me, that's officially
1: pigeon status. Um, like, Sitsa Pass is Djokovic's pigeon, and they're I think one in they're one and three in the world now, which is kind of weird to have somebody that high ranked also be somebody that like almost like a Davy Danko, like Nadal. What is it like? Or like one of those matchups where like one guy just always beats the other guy? Usually yeah. it's like number one ranked and number like sixty ranked. Yeah. Not this. now, Now it's the two top five guys, which is. what oh, is it? Not Roger good. and
0: uh, David Ferrer. Where? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. one
1: of them. Each each yeah. of the big three have like four or five guys who they could just call up at any time. And they say like, <laughs> "Hey, come over. I'm gonna yeah give you a pounding." You know. I uh, I weird, actually.
2: But... Brush shoulders is a slight exaggeration, but was within a meter or two anyway, uh, walking past him today. Somebody who has a 2 0 record against Rafa. Do either of you know who that is? Off the top Uh, of your head, Lucas Rossall? No, but that's that's you. You're in the right territory, actually. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I don't have anything for you. Dustin Brown. Oh yeah, classic. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know it was two and zero until I checked, but I, I knew, of course, about the famous one at, at Wimbledon. Yeah. But yeah. Anyway, listen, I've gone off topic. Uh, Dustin Brown didn't expect to didn't expect to <laughs> to hear his name in an Australian Open twenty twenty three review. Uh, Vivek, direct question, but you can take as long as you want with it. Stefanos Tsitsipas is he gonna win a Grand Slam? And if he is, when, where, and why? I, I
0: think he is gonna win a Grand Slam. I think this. Uh, performance at the Australian Open was probably the most encouraged uh, I've been by him. I thought there was almost a serenity to um, not just his play, but the way he handled himself uh, in the post match interview on the court and then even the press conferences as well. And you look at the way he spoke after the final about taking the lessons from, uh, you know, sort of getting humbled by Novak in, the, in that final. I think I'm really encouraged by that. I think it's really coming together for him. I think Mark Philippoussis has really added an important dynamic to that box of maybe neutralizing some of what <laughs> his dad brings to the table, and and so I think, uh, I honestly think it, we could see it uh, at this French Open. I think as far as uh, the gap looked at the Australian Open, that is just how dominant Novak is on this surface, and I do think that Sitsipas will present a serious threat at the French Open. Having said that, mm-hmm. if he doesn't get a breakthrough at the French Open, it it could be until next year because I wouldn't fancy his chances at Wimbledon or the U.S. Yeah, for um, some reason, he has a title from the second half. Go, Steven. I'm glad you said that, Vivek. I, I, like,
1: so many of the – I don't know about you guys, but the, so many of the commentators that, or comments in our, on my videos on YouTube uh, on the slice are, like, they're so emotional and they're so, like, dramatic. They're like, oh, yeah. huh, he's done, like, sits of passes, like, he's never going to – reach peak form. It's like almost like if players aren't winning majors by the time of Alcaraz then their like careers are over. It's like <laughs> yeah. It's like in reality Sitsipas has 11 more years of, of of health should hopefully, you know, of healthy, you know, super good tennis coming and there's no chance that once Djokovic and Nadal leave, which will happen, before Sisyphus does like, he's not going to win slams. I think yeah, um, multiple slams because he's, he is that good and I'm still ve- very bullish on him. Yeah. Vivek's right. He could win the F- French open. He's going to be top three contender. I would say we can all agree on that. Yeah, um, yeah. And yeah. And he probably will be at the French open for the next like eight years. So why I just can't see him not winning one of those. Um, you know, he arguably should have won one already. Um you know you know in 2021 so yeah i'm not worried about his future prospects at all i think he's this was a good uh uh, uh like the physics said a uh, a good result for him because he had a weird year last year to me like it was a weird year he was like super fallible in the finals you know i think he made 7 but only you know lost 5 um and it seemed like you know he just won all the matches he was supposed to win at the at the Australian Open which is a good sign for confidence as a as a tennis player
2: yeah Talking of good tournaments, there were some other players who didn't make the final, but I think there's a strong case to say they had a good tournament. We've already touched on one of them in in Tommy Paul, uh, but of course as well, Ben Shelton. Vivek, give me some thoughts on Ben Shelton.
0: Yeah, just so much fun to watch him play. I think he's really exciting. And you know, I think when you get a few of these super talented lefties, I think it adds a different dynamic as well when you look to the future of the sport. And so I've really enjoyed watching him um and you know to think that this was the first time that he had ever left the states yeah and it's like yeah i'm just rolling through (laughs) the australian open and uh having excellent results i I think uh he's got a good head on his shoulders for being so young and i thought he took everything in stride and uh, i think he's a super exciting prospect for the future of tennis and um I'm, I'm curious, uh, you know, more so than the French. I would I would love to see what his game looks like on the grass.
2: Okay, yeah, good point. By the way, you mentioned about him leaving, you know, the U.S. for the first time, et cetera. I was thinking to myself, you know, when when you're in Europe in particular, you, your first time out of your country, for, for British people in particular, end, ends up being France, of course, and, if you, you know, your nearest neighbor, et cetera, et cetera. And I was just thinking to myself, the first time outside of the country, you're getting on a plane, you're going 15, 16, 17 hours or whatever the journey is. And you're you're also going across the Pacific Ocean. It must feel so weird to then rock up. And anyway, he certainly fell at home. Only his second slam as well, Stephen.
1: Yeah. No, it was a great, great tournament for Ben Shelton. Like, what a player. He's he's clearly going to be a star. He's clearly going to be, like, very, like, you know, top top of the game for years to come. Um I thought you know he had a great draw for him to be honest. Like the, again like I think he won. Like none of the matches he won were actually that surprising, were they? Like the opponents he played were also kind of other like challenger level. Like JJ Wolf, yeah. Low, yeah, low one hundred or you know.
0: Yeah, he he, to he got a bit fortunate. Like the third round, he probably should have been playing Fritz, and he gets Popper in right so right so
1: my point is like he he had a favorable draw to help get him to the um i guess it was the quarterfinals where they played which is crazy and then and then you did see the difference in class when he played tommy paul um he tommy was just able to figure okay like you know your forehand's huge okay let's see where where else you're vulnerable and he kind of exposed him on the backhand there but again it doesn't really matter if your backhand's that weak because his his weapons are so big so his serve and his forehand um, you know, and his general athleticism are absolutely elite. And I'm not, I don't think I'm sh- shading Ben Shelton at all. Like, he already beat Casper at uh, I think that was Cincinnati. So, like, he yeah. has been, you know, he's he's a star. He's going to be here. And, and it's actually crazy because he stepped up. Because for a while there, like when he beat Casper I don't think he'd even won a challenger yet. And then he won three in a row to end the year. Because I was calling, kind of saying some things on Twitter. Because our my guy, Canadian uh, Gabriel Diallo, he's like a six foot seven challenger player. He had already won a Challenger Tour title and he beat Ben Shelton. And then Ben Shelton's getting like way, way, way more hype. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's just because he's American. Let's pump the brakes. Then he wins three Challengers and makes the quarterfinals of the Australian Open. So I am firmly on the Ben Shelton bandwagon now. Um, (laughs) And it's all good. So yeah, incredible player and a great tournament for him.
2: And although I I agree with you both in terms of the draw and, and Fritz and stuff, but Fritz, perfect example Draws open up for Fritz, and yet he still finds a way of getting knocked out. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, I know he had Basilashvili in the first round here, and and um, and Popperin in the second, but you know that's two slams now, Vivek, back to back. Like I say, he's managed to find himself out of the tournament within a couple of days of it of it getting underway. And I remember his press conference in New York was like, "I don't know how that happened. That cannot happen to me." And and that's fine, I get that. But but now it's is it a, is it a worrying pattern, Vivek?
0: I think the reason I'm more discouraged is because of how excited I got by his end of the year and that run to, you know, get into the ATP finals. And then look, I I mean, honestly, he he played well at the ATP finals as well. And so I thought he would take that confidence uh, into the new year. And so to kind of fall flat here, um, you know, I kind of put him and Felix in that same boat right now in terms of maybe not beating the players that they're supposed to. Um, and maybe rising to the occasion of, you know, those big matchups that they get. Uh, And so I think that's something that, you know, he's just going to have to go back to the drawing board and say, hey, this is something that obviously has been a problem for me, the two slams in a row, uh, underperforming. And, uh, you know, this was a real opportunity. Obviously, we saw, you know, Felix, who never complains, you know, talk about the balls and uh, the way they feel kind of dead. Uh, we don't know if that's, again, both those guys hit heavy balls, right? And so maybe, you know, that hindered them to some degree. Um, but that's that problem-solving element uh, that you have to have at the highest level uh, that maybe that they need to look at carefully and say, hey, I've got to be able to make adjustments.
2: Steven, uh, with a nice segue there, and I had Felix already at the image of him losing to Lehezke here already there. But as soon as Vivek says it, I'm like, I'll press that button. Steven, where, where are we at with Felix right now? Is it a similar place to Fritz? I think there's
1: levels to pressure that players feel. And as you get, as your ranking improves, there's new pressures that come to you. So for Fritz, example, like, yeah, I had him in my top five real contenders at the uh, at the AL, which self-promotion here was an elite top five pick. You know, not too hard, but I had Djokovic, Sitsipas, one and two, and they made the final. But then I had... Uh, Medvedev and then I had Fritz and then Felix so these yeah two, these two guys disappointed me in that way but you know when you're Fritz like you should logically be thinking okay quarterfinals is like the minimum for what I want to make here I'm, t- I'm a yeah. top eight player Um, so then you just like that pressure internally there's just no way that these guys don't start thinking like that because that's athletes do it they always say I'm just focusing on the next round but they have to say that alright so um, well they don't have to but you know you should say that and it should you know But so I, I I always wonder if it's like, yeah, like there's that pressure of like, I'm not losing in the second round to popper and who, you know, played horrific tennis the day before, uh, or in a match before somehow won it. And then came out here and played awesome, you know, with the home crowd at his back and, and, you know, he's obviously can play great. He's a talented player, but, um, yeah, it's just tough. Everyone's hard to beat and you can't, you can't be mentally weak out there. And, uh, yeah, I don't know if that was the case, but you just, you know, I think it was a little bit for, with Felix, um, to answer your question um, with Felix, the same type of pressures, right? Like he, to me was like legitimately had a shot of like doing serious damage at this tournament. And if you were to face a Djokovic um, and he, and Felix played his best game, he could seriously um, beat him. Like it wouldn't be like, you know, it'd be a, obviously a big upset, but it would be like the type of upset that are meant to happen. Not like the estimates in second round. It'd be like, Oh yeah. wow. This young guy who's been here knocking on the door for a number of years beats the best guy. That makes sense. Um, and I think that pressure as well. Like, I don't know, I don't know how it affects him personally, but I know from watching him and talking to him um, you know, lots over the last six months. It's just like to me, like he gets on the court. This is what I always go back to. When he was doing when he's like telling these French hecklers to like shut up in Paris, that was like peak Felix for me. It's like I love that new kind of mentality of like the bad boy Felix, a little bit more confident. It's, like, yeah, you're gonna disrespect me for three hours. I'm gonna tell you to like, you know, tell you where to stick it. Like that I like. And then sometimes he gets, you know, if he's not confident in these matches, he gets really, really tense out there. And then guys like Lehechka or um not Kozlov, but I forget who he was, who he was playing in the second round, um, you know, can really take take it More to can? him. Okay. Can, that's right, thanks. Um, they can, you know, hit big and they can really get Felix on his back foot and then he's he's not as again his his floor level is not as high as other guys his floor level can drop to where he can lose to you know you know i would say like 100 guys on the tour so um yeah i mean again he's 22 no reason for panic at all people people get so crazy because like i always just think about when federer started winning majors and he ended up winning 20 and you know getting in the goat debate so and he was he was basically felix's age when that all started so let's uh let's pump the brakes on counting Felix out. Um, but yeah, disappointing tournament for him. But I think if those balls had a bit more zip, he would have felt more confident and not, a, not a good excuse for him, but like it, he would have felt more confident, um, you know, with his, with the heaviness of his ball doing more damage. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is the deal. Each week you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment.
0: That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I
1: didn't want to do another stomp you out
0: speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The 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 Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal.
2: Listen to The Deal on Spotify. An interesting thing regarding the pressure and Felix Steven is that um, his best performance at a slam... Arguably, would have been the French Open fourth round against Rafa. I guess it was last year. Um, you know, I'm not saying his best result, or, 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 or I'm just thinking of a, a performance that was was like wow. As much as mm. that, I mean, because I don't. I think Rafa was off it in a couple of sets, but there was also two or three sets when Rafa was really on it, especially the fifth one. And um, maybe he was just like, you know what? The pressure's off me today. There's nothing, there's no expectation. I'm going to go for it, try and play my best tennis. And I think he did, you know, on a surface that we don't necessarily expect him to excel at. And yet here, you know, you mentioned the Molkan match, which I think was was five sets. He goes out to Lahetska. I also watched him play against, I think it was Sarondolo, was it in the second or third round? round? And he was pushed a bit there, especially in the second set. I think Sarondolo wins that. It goes four. Um, you know, the fact that he went out to Le was like, this is not really a surprise. He'd been sort of struggling through. And yet, Stephen, as you said, there was so much optimism at the back end of last year. Uh, The paris Bercy moment you mentioned, but also him winning, I think, two or three tournaments back to back and the serve just not getting broken for a while. Was it three, is that? Okay, thanks. Yeah, and and um, you know, not getting broken serve for about seventy-three years or something like that, um, etc. Uh, when I don't, when I don't know, Stephen, I, I just go big on the exaggeration. Great, People yeah. laugh, and then they don't realize that I, I didn't know exactly how many service <laughs> games it was. It's uh, a tough Vivek, stat to pull out. That's a tough stat It is to a tough one, but some people do know it. And they'll, they'll be in the live chat. On my they got back. it written down. Those are the people who got it written down before coming yeah. on. Well, they, they can also just go to Google, by the way. Yeah, so they yeah. come back 37. Oh, 97, you didn't know that. And, and you're like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, anyway, listen, Vivek, uh, finish off our sort of Felix chat, and then we'll move on to Chapeau as well. You can give him some some love or otherwise as well.
0: Yeah, with Felix, uh, I I think he's just got to, you know, build on handling pressure, right? And I think uh, to the discussion earlier that Stephen brought to the table, it's, it's one thing to go into a 250 and beat the players you're supposed to beat. And then it's another to go into a Grand Slam and beat the players you're supposed to beat. And he's talked about this as well, acknowledging that, hey, I've earned this ranking. Now this creates... Uh, an easier draw for me. This creates the opportunity to save the big matchups for later, but you still have to earn those those big matchups. And so, I think that's the main thing that Felix has got to look at. I, I think uh, again, I will say the problem solving uh, in real time is definitely something that he needs to evaluate and try to improve at, mm-hmm. because you know when you watch him at his best, he's got everything, right? He, that that serve plus one is right at the top with anyone. Uh, and then, you know, uh, the backhand at its best can make him a top three player, if not, you know, contending for that number one spot. So I think it's just these little moments that he needs to improve on, handling the pressure, uh, you know, making adjustments in real time, and then he'll get there. For Shapovalov, I was honestly encouraged with what I saw. I don't think there's any shame in going out to QB Hercox in the third mm-hmm. round uh, and, you know, him he'll probably look at that fifth set and he already talked about it in terms of uh not being mentally strong enough to handle that fifth set and so i think overall i was pretty encouraged with what i saw we we saw huge dips uh last year and and him sort of come out of it slowly but surely and now i think this is a performance that he can be encouraged by and we're also evaluating both of them now i think on a bit of a different scale right? We are looking at Felix to be that consistent top five player. Whereas I think with Chapo, even making the top 10 now would be a huge accomplishment, right? So it is a bit of a different scale that, the, that we're looking at these two players now. Um, and so with Felix, maybe we are a bit harder on him because now he's kind of told on himself and he's almost a victim of his own success. And and we're evaluating him that way.
2: Mm-hmm. Maybe I think it might have been Stephen was just sort of thinking about my comment regarding Felix and the French Open, and that there is, of course, the one again. I've just remembered the one against um, Medvedev at Australian Open a year ago. But in a way, that falls into a similar, you know, bracket. Pressure's not super much on him. He's not expected to beat Medvedev. He does have a match point if, if memory serves me right. But it was a, an unreturnable serve. But anyway, listen, Stephen. Um, some final thoughts on Chapo before we move on. Yeah,
1: Chappell, I, I like where his game's at. He, at the end of last year, he started playing the type of tennis that I think he needs to play to beat top guys. Um, and I think he, you know, he's emotional and he cares so much. So he, you know, admitted that uh, after the Hercash thoughts that he, he had nerves, right? And I don't know if anyone who's played sports knows what that means. Like you're just nervous. And in tennis, it's a terrible feeling because there's nowhere to hide. So, um, and with his game, obviously things can go wrong when you're tight. So, But he, in general, I think he's just, you know, him and his coach, Peter Polanski, have gotten him into a place, like, through trial and error, through a long time, to play the mature style of tennis that he needs to play. Um, And he's never going to, like, not miss. So, like, people, I think some people are, like, looking for that. And they're, like, he's still missing too much. It's like, Federer missed his entire career, like, a lot. Like, he had a lot of unforced errors every match he played. And he, you know, could beat anyone. So, it's it's not about not missing for him. It's about missing in the right times or, you know, not having too many just dumb things. And he's playing the type of tennis that I'm happy with. So third round loss to her catch is like, yeah, that he wasn't supposed to win that match. So that's okay. Um,
2: yeah, I think he can have a great year. And the last two slams now that is kind of positive five set defeats if, if if it if it becomes a pattern it becomes a bit more of a concern right. but I think he was pretty good against Rublev and you know yeah, I think it was great how he I think Rublev was serving for interestingly very similar to the Herkatch scenario because her was serving for and I think it goes love 40 that particular game. There was there were three great matches by the way going on at the same time in, in different stages. I think Corda was against Medvedev going into a first set tiebreaker while you had deciding moments going on with Tiafo and Hachanov, who we're going to come to in a second and and, and of course the culmination of that that chapeau match with with her catch and they all ha- and it was sort of like flitting between the tv screens it was it was actually one of the one of the peaks along with Andy Murray of, of the tournament in in that sort of 5 minutes because we got two matches decided and arguably as well the Medvedev match was decided in that first set by the way um where are we at with Medvedev right now um, Vivek
0: I think we're, you know, in that same in-between phase. Uh, I think you you look at that match against uh, Seb Korda, you're probably thinking this is an opportunity, you know, if you're viewing it from his perspective, saying this is an opportunity to make a statement, uh, taking on someone who's had, you know, arguably the hottest start to the year outside of Novak Djokovic on the men's side. And um, I think it was a very competitive match uh, (laughs) for... Uh, you know what the final score was but I think mm. Medvedev uh, in these conditions compared to you know what we saw of him in 2019 uh, and what we generally expect of him he's still below expectations and I think um, all the expectations that have come since he became world number one have kind of taken its toll um, obviously he was unfortunate uh, to miss out in that middle stretch of the season last year with Wimbledon and whatnot and, Uh, unfairly being, you know, penalized and not being able to play it. But I think all of that has taken its toll. And it's just, it seems easier to crack him uh, in that aspect now than it was before.
2: There seems to be a vulnerability and the, the problem I would say with, as opposed to pretty much any other player that we've mentioned already, City Pass, you know, Chapeau, Felix, whatever. I, I, I'm probably more concerned about um, Medvedev because it's a year and it's a year of, of just nowhere near coming to the level. I think his best result, I know he's, he's won a couple of tournaments, uh, a 250 and a 500, but arguably his best result was a semi-final in, in Cincinnati and even that... Um, you know, he includes a loss to Tsitsipas, Pass, who he's generally, you know, been the boss of. So, uh, for me, I think there's there's a lot of concerns. I I know we all look at that love forty moment in the Rafa final of 2022, and and, and it maybe it's just an easy thing, but it, it it does seem to have been now. It's over 12 months of just underachievement. Stephen, if you want to finish on on Medvedev, but then I'll move on to Hachanov.
1: Yeah. You guys are all hitting the nail on the head. He's, I, I, I have optimism for him. Like it, it, he has been had a weird 2012, sorry, 2022 year with, with all that you guys mentioned, especially similar to Sissipas, like a brain injury moment when, you know, you lose a match, um, you know, it, arguably, I think Stefan or Medvedev was even more in control, like much more in control of that match than Stefanos Definitely. was. Yeah. Um, and to me, that was a more of a choke than Stefanos was. Um, and then yeah i don't know i just think now he's coming he'll have to come he's like 12th in the world which is crazy um Mm -hmm. so now he's gonna come play that um villain role again where he's kind of like the underdog coming up the ranks and i think he's much more comfortable and plays better tennis in that role anytime he was the number one he he like didn't play well and um you know when he was like the counter when you know when he was you know when he was like the guy who's gonna play spoiler at the u.s open uh 2021 he like played his he played exactly how he needed to and like got over the line versus Djokovic which even though Djokovic was like mentally collapsing like it was like still not easy to do like he could have got broken there or like you know he, you know got broken right at the end and he could have let it go so anyway anyways he's gonna play the villain role and I predict he will be back in the top five by the end of the year
2: that's okay. my prediction Hatchinov. um is he Stephen? Is he just been lucky with draws and runs because he has got two semi-finals in a row, but he's still not beating anyone in the top ten? I, is it is it um, twenty matches in a row, something like that? Twenty-one, it might because they might well have been twenty going into the Sixt Pass match. Is he just is he just you know making the most of it while he can, or is there is there something I'm missing regarding hatchinov Stephen?
1: No, I think that pretty much sums it up. Like he, like I think you know, if he's not beating any to, any top ten players and he's making two semifinals in a row, he's getting helped up by the draws for sure. But he's a great player. Like he's, you know, we forget he's, you know, he is talented. Like he beat Djokovic in Paris, Paris, Percy. Like what is that, 2019 or 2018 final 2018, to win, yeah. which is kind of crazy. Um, okay. But so he's got it there. But I do think his he's kind of reached his ceiling. Um, and if Karen's watching this, like you know, I'd love you to prove me wrong. I always say that, but. Like I think he's kind of just reached his ceiling as far as where where his game can get to. His forehands, um, you know, everything's huge. He's a great player. Like I think his ranking can improve. I think he can get back in the top ten. Um, but yeah, he's uh, he's kind of yeah he's doing that same thing. He's like winning all the matches he should, losing all the matches he should, and then sometimes the draw allows you to get to the semifinals, which it has twice in a row. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. Like you know, I don't think Clay's his best, but uh, we'll see. You'll yeah, we'll see the real results for the rest of the year. But, no. You know, gr- seems like a great guy, great player, but I don't think he's going to be winning majors
2: ever. In soccer in soccer terms, Vivek, uh, this is the kind of thing that Ferguson would put up on the wall to motivate his team, you know? <laughs> he, he would clip what Steven just said there, put it on the wall, and every time he goes out to take the court, it'd be like, boom, and then he'll be winning a slam, and he'll be going, Steven from the slice on so talking tennis, we're saying this and that, and this, this proves him wrong. I would love that. That would be the highlight of my journalistic career getting
1: used as like fuel to fuel someone's uh slam win.
0: Yeah, yeah. what do you, but I, I agree with Stephen. I think wh- what I will say is with his current game, he has absolutely reached his ceiling. He is definitely extracting the maximum out of what his current game is. His backhand is too weak, and he comes to the net nowhere near enough frankly, it's non-existent at this point. So I think he should look at someone like a Matteo Berrettini and say, that's a guy with a weak backhand, but whose ceiling is higher than mine. And Berrettini will take those, you know, serve and volley opportunities. He will come to the net when he's playing on grass. And that's something that Kachanov needs to add to his game. And so I think if you want to even take some inspiration from Sabalenka and say, hey, this is someone who completely reworked her serve and now has become a grand slam champion i need to rework my backhand my grip is is not favorable i'm only able to hit it flat and you know and, and in that case unless it's really dropping short for me there's nothing i can really do with it i think if you go back to the drawing board and say hey i'm just gonna rework this shot maybe in time he can achieve a higher ceiling maybe for some time he will drop down the rankings to actually fix it but uh I think if he wants to achieve a different type of ceiling, that's what he would need to do.
2: I don't know if Paul in the live chat is is telling us about uh, Hatchinoff going to be going on a 374 week run at number one, or perhaps Paul is referring to somebody else who we touched upon at the beginning of the show. <laughs> uh, listen, let's come to one more player before we, we finish, because there is um, a, a sort of gaping hole in the Australian open resume or any men's tournament resume if you like and that is rafa nadal Stephen, where are we i'm glad by the way paul appreciates the joke i'm glad he does um where are we at with rafa i mean he's on this run now i think it is of like two or three wins out of you know a dozen or so matches of course we've had a couple of injuries during that period um but you know are we are we talking about the r word where where are we at with this Stephen? it's hard to know because it could be like so many other years where he's not
1: done well at the Australian open or lost, you know, in general, and then comes into the French or the the clay swing looking revitalized and looking great. So I'm, I've learned that lesson too many times to call to say it's, you know, it's over, but it doesn't look good. Like, does it? It obviously does not look good. He looks very beatable to anyone on t- like to a lot of players on tour. Um, but, you know, that's going to change. I'll tell you that for free. That's going to change when it gets to the clay, if he's healthy. Um, so, I don't know. There's not – you know, I think it's it's insane last year that he had to run – that he won the Australian Open, which was great. And then he won the French Open, which makes a lot more sense. But he also just played great, really good in between, aside from some other injuries. Um, so, yeah, like it's not too crazy to me that at 36 he's not – you know, playing great, at, and he has injuries at the Australian Open, but then he'll show up at his best surface. I think playing well, um, but yeah, you know, basically this this level and shouldn't surprise us. I think at this career, it, it, we got to remember it's surprising when they keep winning, and they it's actually not surprising when they play bad at 36. Like it's it's actually surprising when they're dominant, like they have been. So.
2: Vivek, what do you think about Rafa's upcoming clay court swing, assuming that this injury does heal in the sort of six to eight week timeframe that he's mentioned?
0: Yeah, I mean, if if he recovers in time, which it looks like he will, um, I expect him to be the favourite at the French Open. I think he's earned that. <laughs> I think he is been as dominant on a surface as anyone and so i think he's always one french open away from having momentum on his side and i would not be surprised if he showed up the french open and took the title I, i think uh when he's evaluating uh what's left in the tank i do think the perfect scenario for him to leave the sport is at paris next year representing spain at the olympics and so I think looking at that down the line, he'll probably say, okay, I've got, you know, these next five slams. Let me give everything I have, and then I can say goodbye uh, on my terms. So, uh, you know, I I thought, you know, a sneaky thing that might have aided him as well um, was probably the fact that he played Novak earlier in the tournament at Roland Garros. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think coming off that win over Felix, I think he was in really good spirits and really feeling good about his game. And I thought that worked out perfectly. Uh, I think, you know, when they play in the semis or the finals and having that much, uh, that many hours on the court going into a, a matchup against Djokovic, I think that's where maybe... Djokovic can wear him down a little bit more. And we saw that at the semis in uh, 2021. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's the key. When those two would potentially match up uh, at the French Open uh, in determining how good his chances look.
2: Yeah, uh, I I like the, the the time frame in terms of, of the Olympics next year, uh, Vivek. And I can see... Let's just say the next 12 months goes a similar way, you know, stop, start with injuries, some good moments, but but largely a lot of defeats, if you like. I can see him still going, you know what, I could could just play doubles at, at, at the French Open. By the way, I'm not saying that's what's going to happen, but that, that is one possible route. However, I don't think he knows yet really what the next six weeks, six months, never mind two years are gonna be like the only tiny clue might be uh, a couple of things first of all I think he was a bit surprised about some things that have gone on on the court you know maybe the the way he, he lost in Paris Bercy and then also the defeats indoors in Turin I know there's this record about him indoors and the rest of it but I, he's still a very very good he's still a top five player indoors uh, but but I also think maybe that the tears that his wife showed uh, in in Melbourne was was kind of indicative that she may be and also the tears that of course they that he shared with Roger last year is almost like this is gonna be me soon don't know when but soon but yeah just don't know he could you know a year ago or less than a year ago you know during that French open run I'm sure the retirement word did go through his mind with the foot and everything else but Now it seems to be other things, but at least it's not it's not like the knee and then it breaks down. It's the knee and then it breaks down. I I think I'd rather it be different parts of the body, if it makes sense. I know other people might think otherwise, but in a way, you know, if it was recurring with the same part of the body, you know, maybe maybe there would be greater cause for concern. But um, I'm optimistic that we'll see him. for the clay court season and, and fingers crossed he doesn't miss the French open. Cause it's the one with, I think the exception of the first couple of years, his career, and there was another time when he pulled out, but he's probably made more French open appearances than he has, uh, Wimbledon or us open anyway, it, it, off the top of my head, I would say that just cause he always seems to be fit for that. And understandably. So, um, listen, any final Australian open thoughts, Stephen? before we wrap this up? No, I think we, um, uh, dissected it thoroughly. I think so too. Listen, uh, Vivek, you can uh, can say something about the Australian. Uh, just a little bit underwhelming, I thought.
0: Yeah, I mean, okay. I think for sure, if we got some of those big matchups, we'd be looking at it a bit differently. Uh, you know, in, in terms of a final uh, thing, I'd like to just add. Um, obviously, we were talking about the men, but uh, I am of Indian descent. So, uh, Sanya ah. Mirza saying mm-hmm. uh, goodbye to Grand Slam Tennis. Um, she's done incredible things for the country and for women and for Muslim, Muslim women. And so to get that goodbye, obviously would have loved to see her win that final, but to get to the final in itself was a huge accomplishment and obviously pretty emotional speech that she gave. And yeah, just uh, super grateful for what she's accomplished. Uh, You know, winning six slams, three in mixed and three in the women's doubles and across the two, uh you know she's won all four so i think that's a lot to be proud of
2: vivek we're gonna do a double show at some point in the next 24 to 48 hours as well um so that's cool and of course she will get a mention as will kraychikovo and and many others that have done well down under listen both of you thank you very much for stopping by thanks so much for having me thanks for having uh, us on john Thank you, Stephen. Uh, thank you very much, and hopefully we cross paths again sometime soon. And uh, guys, I'm going to play a little music outro that that goes somewhere between three, six, and ten minutes, uh, so you can just sail off into the Vancouver and Toronto sunset. Doesn't really work at 10 a.m. or 1 p.m., but you know what I mean. So, guys, <laughs> yeah. take care. I'm going to play this music, and uh, yeah, just shut down basically. See you, guys. See ya. See ya. <laughs> If you enjoyed this video make sure you hit that like button, don't forget to subscribe and click that notification bell so you don't miss out on all things tennis. Bell so you don't miss out on all things
1: tennis. Sports Social Podcast Network.
0: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
2: A laundry? oh a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah,
0: oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino.